Well, amen. What a gift that Christ is ours forevermore. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Jesus says in Matthew 7, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And on this Father's Day, I believe that God, our great heavenly Father, has given us a really, really good gift in our passage today from Micah. So go ahead and turn to Micah 4. Micah 4 will be in verses 1 through 5. We've been working through this summer sermon series in Micah, which is a really wonderful little uh, prophetic book with themes of justice and love. And I hope it has already blessed you as it has blessed me. All the prophets, this is just a biblical principle, all the prophets are essentially about what Israel has done wrong and what God is going to do about it. And we've had two sermons in Micah already, and they were mostly about what Israel has done wrong. They might have felt heavy. Uh, this week is, about, is what God is going to do about it. What a gift that would be. So our passage for today is Micah 4, 1 through 5. It says this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in its paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against, na against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, would you show us where our hope should lie? Show us where our hope should lie, Father. Glorify your name. Be exalted among your people. Speak to us of your gracious heavenly promises. Lord, we want to hear from you today. This is not about any human speaking to your people. This is about you speaking through your word. So I pray that you would speak to us today. Be with us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How often do you think about heaven? How often does the thought of our eternal home, our final resting place, frequently cross your mind? At first glance, it seems quite obvious that heaven should be on our mind all the time. After all, we'll be on this life varies probably 70-ish years, getting longer now, you'll be in heaven forever. 
forever. So you would think we'd be thinking about it all the time. And it's going to be incredible. It will be paradise. We'll finally see Jesus face to face. It's going to be amazing. Yet, I suspect that for many, if not most of us, we don't reflect on our blessed hope of heaven hardly at all. I confess that was true of me throughout much of my Christian life. Didn't really think about heaven that much. Why is that? Why don't we? When God has promised such blessing to us in the future, why do we ignore it? Brothers and sisters, it ought not to be so among us. The blessings of God should not be taken lightly. The people of God should be yearning for the dwelling place of God. Heaven is greater than your biggest hope on this earth. It's greater than having lots of possessions. It's greater than having lots of money. It's greater than having that spouse you desire or those children you desire or those, that spouse you love or that children you, you love. Heaven's greater than all those things. In addition, we as pilgrims, we as Christians are pilgrims on a really dangerous journey called life. We live in a dark and dangerous world, a world of injustice and falsehood, a world of strife and anger. Life, if we're just being honest with ourselves, life is hard. It's hard. We need hope. And the hope that God provides is heaven. God in his grace has given us this prophecy in the book of Micah as a gift, a prophecy about a mountain, a prophecy about heaven, the new Jerusalem. My prayer for this sermon is that God would teach us, and be praying this, that God would teach us that the future hope of God's people is wholly dependent on him raising up a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Mount Zion, and on this heavenly mountain we would find our peace and rest. To do this, God shows us a few things about the new Jerusalem. Uh, firstly, we see that new Jerusalem is the site of our hope. So to understand our need for a new Jerusalem, we need to know about the history and significance of the old Jerusalem. In Genesis 12, God picks out Abraham out of the whole world. He picks out one man. He's a pagan man. He doesn't know God. And he tells him to leave his country and go to the land that God promises. And God then promises that a great nation will come from him, a nation that will, that will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. From Abraham came the son of promise, Isaac, who was miraculously born to Abraham's barren wife, Sarah. And from Isaac came the chosen son, Jacob, who God later named Israel. And it was from Israel, or Jacob, that the 12 tribes of the Israelites descended from. And it was this nation of Israel that God instructed to build the tabernacle and eventually the temple, which is the sanctuary where God's presence dwelt with his people. It was this temple that was built on the top of the mountain that was in the middle of Jerusalem called Mount Zion, which in Hebrew means the mountain of the sanctuary or the mountain of the refuge. It was the mountain of the temple. It was here that the Israelites were meant to seek the Lord in his sanctuary, to offer sacrifices, to atone for their sin, and to pray to the Lord in the midst of his presence. And then almost 200 years later, after the building of the temple, we come to the book of Micah. And as Jody preached about last week, 
God was pronouncing judgment, major judgment upon Israel for the sins of its leaders. The main leaders of Israel were wicked, like really wicked, oppressing the poor. Uh, and the prophets of Israel were even worse. They were corrupt. They would not relay the truth of God to God's people. These leaders presumed upon God's grace. If you're in Micah 4, just, just look up a little bit. I have to turn my page. It says um, in verse 11, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. God's response to the sin of Israel was not indifference. No, he was against the sin of Israel. As chapter 3, verse 10 says, Zion was built with blood and Jerusalem was full of iniquity. This is God speaking through Micah. So in verse 12, God says, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So what is God's response to Israel's sin? He says, I will take your mountain. I'll take that blessed hope of Mount Zion your sanctuary, your refuge, and I'm going to flatten it. You think you are high and lifted up, Israel? I will bring you low. Mount Zion shall be no more. It was a mountain, now it's a field. There's nothing there. The mountain will no longer contain my holy temple. And put yourself, this is what we do when we read the Bible, right? Put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite at the time, like, this is, your, your hope is the temple, and here God is saying, yeah, I'm going to destroy it. It's because of your sin. And that prophecy came true. In 586 BC, Babylon completely destroyed the temple on Mount Zion. And then we come to chapter 4, and you can almost feel the sense of relief and hope shining through the page. Micah writes in verse 1 that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. Here, it's as if God is saying, you put your hope in the old Mount Zion, and I have come to tell you about my true mountain. This is the mountain that dwarfs all others, even making them appear as hills. Indeed, it will be established as the highest of the mountains. I know, Israel, I know you are distraught about what will happen to Jerusalem, but let me tell you where your hope should really lie. Now, the question is, when we read this, the question is, what is that mountain? Where should we locate our hope? A clue is that Micah tells us that this shall come to pass in the latter days. The latter days, what's that? We know it, that it would be after the destruction of the temple in 586 BC. It's later than that, right? But when exactly are these latter days that Micah speaks of? Well, it's possible that Micah is talking about the restoration of Jerusalem, when the people of Israel shall return from exile. And that happened, right? The temple was rebuilt during this time. It was a really big deal. All the blessings of temple worship were restored to Israel after the exile. And that's, that's like, that would have given Israel a ton of hope. The destruction of the temple would have been devastating to them. 
But the hope of the temple returning and the mountain of the Lord again reigning over all the false places of worship, that would have filled you with hope. But the sheer wonder of the promises and the rest of this prophecy and the majestic exaltation of the mountain shows us that something else is going on here than just a return from exile. Micah is talking about something greater than the temple, something greater than a city in the Middle East. The mountain of the Lord, and get this, this is really important. The mountain of the Lord, the replacement for the old Mount Zion with the old temple is the new Mount Zion, the true dwelling place of God. The replacement for the old city of God, the old Jerusalem, is the new Jerusalem. The mountain of the Lord is heaven. It's heaven. Only in heaven will the full extent of this prophecy be fulfilled. Micah is drawing our hearts and minds to heaven. He wants us to think about it. He wants us to hope in it. We are meant to put our hope in heaven, to be looking forward to it, to be longing for it. Micah is pointing us towards our true hope, which is heaven. And not only is this mountain meant to be our hope, it is meant to be our exalted hope. It is meant to be high and lifted up, right? In ancient culture, worship happened on the tops of mountains. That's just where they went. You, went, you want to worship a god, you go to the top of the mountain. It happened at the top of Mount Zion, and it happened at the top of other mountains as well. Within Israel, some of these mountains were worship sites of Yahweh, the one and true God, the, the God we worship. But some of these mountains were worship sites of Baal, which was a false god. And here in Micah, we see that the prophecy that heaven will be the place where, where God is truly worshipped, and he will be exalted over all false gods. It is the highest mountain. It dwarfs all other mountains because God himself dwarfs all other gods. And Micah is saying, that's where our hope should be in. And just a question for you all as I look at verse 1. What is the terrain of your heart? Like if you could imagine your heart as a mountain range, what would it look like? Is the heavenly mountain of the Lord looming large in your life? Does it dwarf everything else? Or are you worshiping at another mountain? Friends, the choice is clear. We can follow the Lord. We can follow the Lord and eagerly await the return of Christ, or we can fall into idolatry. That's the choice. That's the choice. Indifference about heaven is not an option for a Christian. The Bible has no category for that. Looking forward to heaven is proof that our faith is not something extra tacked onto our life, but the worship of Jesus is at the very center of our lives. And get this, because when you love Jesus, you look forward to seeing him. It's pretty simple, right? When you love Jesus, you look forward to seeing him. So if you love Jesus, you really, really, really want to be in heaven. You look forward to heaven. You desire it. And I'll be honest, I can testify, this makes all the difference in the world. It changes everything about your life. It's not some small thing that happens. It it changes the trajectory of your life because your trajectory of your life is not in the here and now, but it is in eternity. And that's what Micah is saying. It's saying, let this mountain be higher than all the others. 
Brothers and sisters, in a world of hardship and pain, put your hope in heaven. The new Jerusalem is the site of our hope, not anywhere else. Secondly, the new Jerusalem is the summit of the nations. In verses 1 and 2, Micah says that peoples shall flow to it, it being the new Jerusalem, right? And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. We see here that Israel is not just the site of Israel's hope, but it is the hope of the nations. Micah uses a word here, peoples, peoples, right? You see that? And peoples shall flow to it. It's kind of a weird word. The plural of person is people. So peoples, like you're not supposed to do that in English. Uh, but it's not a mistake. It, it's not a mistake. It, it's been in all the Bibles. Peoples here means ethnic group. It's a term to describe all the different groups of ethnicities and languages around the world. This is the same concept that's in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, all nations, all peoples, same concept, baptizing them and teaching them. So these peoples, what are they doing in heaven? What, what are they up to? Micah says they are flowing up the mountain of the Lord. The word translated flow there literally means river. So they are rivering up the mountain. Of course, if you've seen a river on a mountain, they typically flow down the mountain, not up the mountain. So what's going on there? Uh, when, when rivers flow down mountains, they are pulled by gravity, which, and I, I looked this up just to make sure I understood it, gravity is a physical force where a smaller object, like water, is pulled towards a larger object, like planet Earth. So on planet Earth, we are all pulled down towards the Earth because the Earth is very, very big. So for a river to flow up a mountain, something at the top of the mountain has to be so large, so immense, so incredible that its gravitational force is bigger than the earth's. And it's clear from this passage in Micah that the nations are going to the Lord. Look at it. The nations are calling out to one another, let us uh, go up to the house of the God of Jacob. You see, Yahweh is so glorious, so mighty, so immense that not even gravity can keep him from inheriting the nations. God will have all the nations of the earth. They will river up the mountain because he's that great. Friends, what do you think is the hope of our missionaries that live among the most unreached peoples of the world? Why would they do that? Why would they go there? When they live and work in a city with millions of people that give little or no thought to Jesus Christ, how do they continue to go on? and preach the gospel, and work for the good of the church. I can tell you, they don't have any confidence in their own skills or abilities, but they are confident in God. He will inherit the nations. The Lord will inherit the nations. All the peoples will flow up the mountain to him. The sheer godness of God, his immensity, his greatness, is the very guarantee of the salvation of all the nations of the world. 
Here's an example. Did you know that Iran has one of the fastest growing evangelical churches in the world? Iran. Iran is the birthplace of Shia Islam, like ruled by Ayatollah, stormed the American embassy, burned American flags, that Iran. Fastest growing church in the world. One of them. That's amazing. That's incredible. No one planned for that. No one had this like 12 point plan of how they're gonna save Iran. God just said, I'm gonna have Iran, and he did it because he's God. If you've ever felt discouraged about your evangelism and you are yearning for the salvation of that coworker that is disinterested in religion or that friend who keeps running to her sin rather than running to Christ or that neighbor who's friendly to you but you know they don't know Jesus or that family member, that child who won't turn to Christ despite your years of prayer Friend, let me encourage you. God can save anyone, at anywhere, at any time. He's God. He can make rivers go up mountains. He can do whatever he wants. He will have all the nations of the world. And he can have anybody that you pray for. Oh, be encouraged, church. God is working. The New Jerusalem is the summit of the nations. The nations will arrive there. It's a guarantee. We can bank on it. Thirdly, the New Jerusalem is the source of justice. What are these peoples drawn to? Why do they go up the mountain? Like, what are they attracted to? Starting at the end of verse 2, we read this. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. What are the nations attracted to about God? His justice. That may seem, that may seem a little surprising. But let's dig in. Micah emphasizes three attributes here that will characterize our life in the New Jerusalem, our life in heaven. First, we see that God's law will rule the New Jerusalem. This would have been good news to Micah's audience. Israel's leaders had abandoned the law of God, the law that was meant to protect the worship of God's people and promote justice within God's people. By oppressing Israel, the leaders were forsaking the law of God. And you see, friends, the hope for God's people for justice is really closely tied to the law of God being faithfully executed. This was not happening in Israel to really terrible effects. Read the book of Micah. It's a tough book to read. And we see that terrible lawlessness in our own day, don't we? We still see oppression of the poor. We still see the abandonment and destruction of the unborn. We still see the abuse of the most vulnerable, even within the church. We still see a preference for our own race instead of treating one another according to God's impartial judgment. All of that has happened because the perfect law of God has been abandoned by us. And while we can and should lament over the lawlessness in the world, we must admit that we too can abandon the law of God. Think about this. How many times do we justify our sin through our own reason? You sin and you, you have a reason why you sin. It can be as little as a white lie or as big as adultery. Whenever we justify our sin, we have become a law unto ourselves, and we have abandoned the law of God. 
And in chapter 4, verse 2, Micah is turning our eyes to heaven where the law of God will go forth from Zion. And Micah is saying it's not going to be like that anymore. The law will be faithfully executed forever. When God's law rules the world, there will be no more oppression and no more sin. It's done. Not only will the law completely rule the world, but the law will also completely rule us. And doesn't that give you hope? Think about this. The Lord spoke this through the prophet Jeremiah. The days are coming when I will put my law within them and, will, and I will write it on their hearts. And if you're in Christ, that's already happened to you. But Micah here is saying, there's gonna be a day where the law rules so completely in your heart that you can't even sin anymore. You don't have the ability to. That's gonna be incredible. Our hearts will be transformed to know God's law, love God's law, and to keep God's law. Secondly, the new Jerusalem will be ruled by the truth of God, still talking about what the new Jerusalem's gonna be like. Later on in verse two, Micah prophesies that the word of the Lord shall go forth from Jerusalem. The word of the Lord shall go forth from Jerusalem. You see, Israel's leaders at the time were struggling, were struggling to tell the truth. The prophets of Israel were meant to deliver to God's people the word of God. They were just supposed to reveal it, tell people what God said. That was their job. That's what being a prophet means. But rather than revealing the word of God, they, will, they were concealing the word of God. That was a big deal. But we too struggle to live by the word of God. We too struggle with the truth, don't we? Instead of allowing the word to shape what we believe and how we live, we live according to our own emotions. It is now common to hear people talking about living my truth or allowing others to live his truth or her truth. Biblically, that's just, that's just not a category. We have when you do that, we have taken the objective reality of God's law, and we've made it subjective. And we've said, my emotions are more authoritative than God's word. Instead of trusting the wisdom of God and the word of God, we trust ourselves, from gender reassignment surgery to divorce, from premarital sex to not being committed to the church. We can so often allow our emotions to trump the word of God. We take what God has said in his word and either ignore it question it or attack it. And I would just encourage you, like examine your own heart here. There's a myriad of possible sins, but when you sin, that is what is happening. You're taking God's word and you're ignoring it, attacking it, or questioning it. But friends in heaven, not gonna be like that. The word of the Lord will always be cherished and followed every day forever. There will be no disobedience in God, of God in heaven. When God speaks his true and perfect word, his people will rejoice and obey. No longer will we hear the word of God and wonder if what God says is true. Isn't that good news? There will be no doubt. That's going to be great. There will be no wavering. There will be full and certain obedience by everybody all the time. And it will be glorious. The word will be fully followed forever. And thirdly, the new Jerusalem will be ruled by the righteous judgment of God. Look down at verse 3. Micah prophesies that God shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. Micah is emphasizing here that the nations that are flowing up the mountain in verse 1 are coming to experience the righteous judgment of God. Isn't that interesting? All disputes will be handled by God. All quarrels will be stopped 
by God forever. All trials will be presided over by God himself. In heaven, God's righteous judgment will rule to the extent that all people everywhere can trust that righteousness will rule the world forever. To the Israelites, this would have been good news because the exact opposite was happening. This, their political and judicial leaders were sinning really badly. These leaders detested justice. Instead, they built, Jeru- they built Jerusalem not as a city of righteousness, but as, a, but as a city of sin. The judges were giving judgment not impartially, but for bribes. God doesn't approve of that. We t- but we today can struggle with the limitations and flaws of human justice. We're going to talk about justice a lot in this series, but today I just want to leave you with, sometimes it's hard to achieve justice in this world. It's just kind of limited. It's flawed. Our political and judicial leaders are sinful, and their decisions can sometimes be sinful. We cannot always trust the world's leaders to walk in the ways of righteousness and goodness, and that can leave us wary of the world we live in. Here's an example. In June 1987, Walter McMillan, a black man living in the small town of Monroeville, Alabama, was arrested for allegedly murdering 18-year-old Rhonda Morrison, who was a white dry-cleaning clerk. Walter explained to the sheriff that he had been at a fish fry on the morning when Walter was killed. Couldn't have killed her. I was at the fish fry. Multiple alibi defense witnesses who were all black testified under oath during the trial that Walter had been at the fish fry. Airtight alibi. In the eyes of the judge and jury, didn't matter. Walter, Walter was declared guilty, and the judge sentenced him to death. Walter sat on death row in Alabama for six years, while appeal after appeal was turned away by the Alabama legal system until he was finally released in 1993, when it became clear that the sheriff had forced several witnesses to lie to make Walter appear guilty. That's an extreme example of how bad earthly justice can be, but sometimes it's that bad. And even at its best, it doesn't execute justice perfectly. Friends, in this world, the judgment of humans can be evil, sinful, biased, and flawed. Sometimes we are faced with the sheer fact that pursuing justice is just really hard within our human limitations. But in heaven, in heaven, justice is a guarantee. It's a guarantee. All of God's judgments are right. God never makes a mistake. He will settle every dispute and resolve every conflict rightly. And taken all together, the new Jerusalem will be ruled by lawfulness, truth, and righteous judgment. So heaven as a whole will be a world of justice. And that should fill us with hope. We love talking about love, but we live in a world of injustice, and we need justice. In heaven, God is saying, it's coming. Just wait. And all of, the, all of that justice comes from the new Jerusalem, the source of justice. Finally, the new Jerusalem is the stronghold of peace. The new Jerusalem is the stronghold of peace. What is the result of the nations having come to the mountain of the Lord? As God draws all the peoples of the earth to himself and they are attracted by his justice, his truth, his law, what will their lives look like on the mountain? For all of those who know Jesus here, what will our lives look like in heaven? 
Isn't that a good question? We should think about that question a lot. What is your life going to look like in heaven? Like every day, you could think about that and just let your mind go there. Micah has some details. Look at halfway down, verse 3. They, that's the nations, which means us, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So the nations, remember that's us, having come to hear the word of the Lord, that he may, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, we're going to be dissatisfied with our old ways. Those ways, garbage, trash, we're done with them. God will speak the truth to us so that our lives will be transformed in the most conspicuous way possible. We, people with angry, selfish, sinful hearts, will finally give up war. We'll finally give up war. I think this sometimes can fall flat on modern American ears. Even then, you might have felt like, okay, he's building up to something and he's talking about war. I'm not in the military. That doesn't matter. Our country hasn't faced a war in our land for over 150 years, so I get it. Absolutely, we should support the troops, but it often doesn't touch our lives. War can feel removed from us. But as Christians, as Christians, we aren't meant to just live and love for people that we can see right around us. We are meant to stretch our hearts all over the world to our brothers and sisters that do live in war. Let me give you an example. Uh, did you know that in the present day, the Taliban is very slowly reconquering Afghanistan? Slowly, day by day, taking it back. The Joshua Project estimates that there are 6,000 Afghan Christians living in Afghanistan. So imagine their lives. Put yourselves in their shoes. People that hate you, hate you, right? They're radical. They have a brand of Islam that's just radical, where they, they hate Christians. They hate you. They hate the Jesus that you serve and worship. They're slowly advancing towards your city, and you're watching the defenses fail. If the army flees, which is quite possible, and they capture the city, you would be faced with tremendous persecution up to and including death. War would feel like the most immediate threat in your life. You'd be thinking about war every day, all day, right? Because, of, because the Taliban are coming. And friends, it's not just in Afghanistan. That's what many of our brothers and sisters face every day, every day. Let's not be in our American bubbles where we forget about our brothers and sisters facing this kind of persecution. We live in the age of the sword, the age of danger and strife. But in heaven, in heaven it's not like that. After we hear the word of Yahweh, the age of the sword will end and the age of peace will begin. We will look at our weapons and have absolutely no use for them. We'll be wondering, what do we do with these? We'll look at our instruments of war, and we'll, we'll find a purpose for them. We'll repurpose them and make them productive in the age of peace. That's what Micah's talking about. Micah says that our swords will be beaten into plowshares. Our spears will be turned into pruning hooks. That's farming equipment, right? Plowshares, big blade that goes into the ground, tills it up. Pruning hooks, helps you prune vegetables and fruit and stuff. Not a farmer. 
Our instruments of death will be turned into instruments of life. What we use to kill, we will use to grow food and provide for others. That's what heaven's going to be like. The sword, the weapon, the gun, the rocket, the tank, defunct. No use for them anymore. <laughs> Got to find another purpose for them. No more war. I mean, that's, there's a lot of hope in that. Like, let's not let our Americanness block us from the blessings of the Bible. Like, think about the, the promise and the beauty that that is to our brothers and sisters around the world. Let that impact your heart. But not only will there be no more war, there will be no more danger. No more danger. Look down at verse 4. Micah prophesies that they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And this is it. No one, no one shall make them afraid. No one shall make them afraid. The end of war will bring perfect peace and perfect security. Israel experienced this once during the reign of Solomon. In 1 Kings 25, we read, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, which is an Old Testament way of saying everybody in Israel. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Judah and Israel lived in safety. God's people had once been ruled by a king that ruled with such wisdom that everyone was safe. There is no need to be afraid. You can go out, sit under your tree, no need to worry. And Micah here is saying, that's going to happen again. It's going to happen forever. Another king is coming. Another wise king is coming. That will come to make us safe forever. Fathers, I wonder if this promise feels precious to you today. What are two of the main responsibilities of fathers? It's not all the responsibilities, but two of the main ones. To protect and to provide, right? To protect and to provide. But isn't that sometimes difficult in this world? We live in a world of danger, surrounded by enemies and dangers that sometimes can be invisible to us. As many in this room know, at the beginning of the year, my beautiful, healthy, two-month-old daughter suddenly passed away. On January 22nd, she was doing great. Ruby Lou, happiest little girl you could ever meet. 48 hours later, she was gone. And on this Father's Day, I can testify just to the sheer danger of this world. It's dangerous. I don't say this to scare anyone, but to help us see reality. So often we can presume upon this world. I did it for years. Think, think I'm young and invincible, right? We can fail to see the full effects of the curse and the danger that it has produced around us. But then in Micah 4, we have this great promise. Listen to it. Listen to it again. We will sit under our fig tree and no one will make us afraid. In heaven, you'll be free, free, free from danger, free from fear. There'll be no more worry and no more anxiety. Don't you want that? You don't have it right now. But it's coming. If you're in Christ, it's coming. Safety, full safety, no worry. You will be safe, and so will all your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
because we will be under the care of our great heavenly father. It's coming in heaven. I mean, we should really be wanting that. Not only that, but we'll be free from want. Just keeps going. All the blessings just keeps coming. It says in the Bible, so in the Bible, vineyards and figs, they're symbols of blessing and prosperity from God. And you just think about that, right? Makes sense. Vineyards, grapes, figs, fancy fruit. They're, lux- they're luxuries. They represent abundant provision. Micah is telling us that every person, like, see, right, see that? Every man, every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree. What does that mean? It means that in heaven, all of our needs shall be met. Fathers, you feel that, right? Like you kind of, you're supposed to provide for your family, but it's hard. In heaven, that burden is lifted. And not just for the dads, for all of us, all of our needs will be met. God will abundantly provide for us because God is our heavenly father. This is what he does. This is who he is. He is good. He's a good father. Providing and protecting may be difficult, for limited human fathers in this life. But God has no limits. In heaven, our heavenly father faces no limits. He is the eternal, infinite God. He will utterly and fully care for us. That's what heaven's gonna be like. Because he's that good. No more needs. No more danger. No more war. So we see that the new Jerusalem is the site of our hope, the summit of the nations, the source of justice and the stronghold of peace. In this world, let's do an inventory, right? In this world, there's hopelessness, sin, oppression, injustice, war, danger, and want. But on the mountain of the Lord, the mountain that Mike is talking about, God has ended all those things. Like, not slightly reduced them. They're done forever. Friends, don't you want to be in heaven? Right? Like, that's the question I started out with. I said, how often do you think about heaven? But like, don't you want to be there? It's just better than what you're living in right now. I hope you long to be there. I know I do. To finally see my father, my heavenly father. To finally have rest. Brothers and sisters, let your heart stretch. Stretch your heart. I know you're tempted towards idolatry, but stretch your heart. Make it want heaven. It's just better than what you're experiencing. Pray that the Lord will not tarry. Pray that Jesus would come back. Long, long for heaven. Long for it. But of course, we're left with this obvious question. All these blessings are at the top of the mountain of the Lord. How do we climb? the mountain of the Lord. Who can obtain all these great and wonderful blessings on the heavenly Mount Zion? Psalm 24, Jody read read it at the beginning of the service. Ask that very question. Verse three says this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? What's God's answer? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Our ability to climb the mountain of the Lord is directly tied to how clean 
and how pure we are. Because the mountain is clean. Because it's God's mountain. Because the mountain is pure. Because it's God's mountain. And this is where we as humans meet our greatest problem. No one, not one of us, is clean. Not one of us is pure. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So no one, not one of us, can climb the mountain of the Lord and sit in the Lord's presence. The blessings of Micah 4, we're unable to obtain them. We're shut out of heaven due to our own sin, our dirtiness, our impurity. But there is one who does have clean hands. There is one who does have a pure heart. He lived a perfectly righteous life, never sinning, always obeying his father. On top of a very high mountain, he denied the devil's temptations to obtain all the kingdoms of the world through false worship. On another mountain, he revealed himself to be the God-man during the transfiguration when he showed his disciples his true glory. He gave the greatest sermon ever while sitting on a mountain. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. On the Mount of Olives, at the end of his life, he prayed for his father to take the cup of wrath from him. Nevertheless, he prayed that the father's will be done. He was then arrested, falsely condemned, and taken to a mountain just outside Jerusalem named Golgotha, the place of the skull. And on Golgotha, he was nailed to a Roman cross. One nail went through this wrist, one nail went through this wrist, and a nail went through his ankles, and he was crucified. And it was there, it was there that he took on all of our sin, all of our dirtiness, all of our impurity. Three days later, after he rose from the dead, he returned to the Mount of Olives, and he ascended into heaven. He climbed the mountain of the Lord. So who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can climb the mountain? Only the Lord of the mountain, Jesus Christ. He is the only one worthy. He is the one who has received blessing and righteousness. But here's the good news for you and me. That blessing and righteousness that he received, he will freely, freely give it out to anyone who comes to him. Friend, you want to climb the mountain of the Lord? When you hear about heaven, do you want that? Then you must know the Lord of the mountain. It's the only option. I promise you, none of us is good enough to, de to deserve heaven. We deserve hell. It's eternal fire. It's the opposite of everything I've been talking about. The earth, what we're living in right now, is cursed because of us, remember? Because of our sin. But because of Jesus, you can go to heaven. Oh, friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ, just simple message for you, it's time to know him. It's time to repent. It's time to trust Jesus. Don't you see his heart for you? Like, like this passage? Like think about heaven. He wants that for you. And he went through the cross to give you that because of his great love for you. It's time to turn to Jesus. It's time. Please, please do so. But for the rest of us, what do we do now? Those of us who know Christ. Like Micah tells us in verse 5. It says, for all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, we are living in exile. 
Just like Israel was going to go into exile, we're living in exile right now. This place is not our home. We don't belong here. We're surrounded by nations that worship falsely and worship false gods. We're surrounded by idolatry. And you will be tempted, just a warning to you, Christian, you will be tempted to abandon God at some point. Your sin will be enticing. The idols will seem more satisfying than the Father. Resist. Resist. There is an end to this exile one day. If you are in Christ, if you cling to him, we're going to go to heaven. We're going to go home to the mountain of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, God has promised us to, that we're going to heaven. Look at the end of verse four. It says, the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Where does our confidence come from? Same place that Micah's did. God is true to his word. What God says is true. And if God has promised that this is what heaven will be like, it's true. And if God has promised that in Jesus you can be there, that's true. The mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. He does not lie. He can't. He is faithful. Church, all those who know Jesus, we're going to go to heaven. Just stop. Stop and think about that. If you're in Jesus today, we are going to go to heaven. That's real. It's not something we just talk about at church on a Sunday morning and it's fun. Like, that's going to happen. If you're in Jesus, we're going to go to heaven. We don't deserve it. Definitely don't deserve it. We deserve hell. But Jesus, the Lord of the mountain, is coming back. And he will meet us there. And he will say, let's go to the top. Let's go meet the Father. If you're in Christ, I'll see you there. I can't wait. Until then, may God help us. Let's pray together. Father, we really want to be in heaven, Father. This life is hard. Oh, but you are so good. Your promises are so good. You are good to us, your children. Father, we pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would help us resist the idols of the world. And we pray that you would help us long for heaven. We confess that our hearts can be dull. Our hearts can be uh, forgetful. We can think about this world far more than heaven. Forgive us, Father, and transform us. Make us long for, this, for, the, for heaven, where our hope is, where justice is, where peace and security is. Father, we want to be there. And Jesus, come back. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.